sure we're live. We're live on the internet. All right, here we go. Book of Romans. Book of Romans. We've now been here. See, we started Book of Romans in, I think, 2019. We're in 2022, and we're still in chapter 9, okay? And we'll probably be in chapter 9 until, I don't know, 2027. Who knows? It's going to take a long time uh, to finish this, but we've got a lot to do. So here's what's happening so that everyone knows. Wednesdays, Sunday nights, we have been working on Matthew chapter 24. That's also what we're using for the podcast for the Bible study exercise, right? Matthew 24, Matthew 24, Matthew 24. The whole significance of Matthew 24 is that everyone looks at Matthew 24, they see some of the so-called things that Jesus predicts will happen, they immediately rip them out of Matthew 24 and apply them to the second coming, when there's a very good argument that a majority of those are not a reference to the second coming, but a reference to what? 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, which then brings up different perspectives of eschatology, right? A a historical perspective versus a futuristic perspective or a preterist perspective versus a non-preterist perspective. Now tonight on Matthew 24, we'll look at it more from a preterist perspective and see if we can make that work. Or if it doesn't work, we'll work on that. So that deals a lot with eschatology that deals a lot with biblical prophecy. Yes, so we've been working on Matthew 24 for the Bible study exercise for the podcast, and we've been using it here uh, at church for different uh, sermons and messages. We'll keep working on that because it's so important. But as we've been working on Matthew 24 and Romans 9, we've found ourselves dealing with things very, once again, referencing and related to biblical prophecy and eschatology. In this particular case, we're dealing with a very important question. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I will read it to you one more time. Romans chapter 9. Not the whole chapter, so it'll be okay. Romans chapter 9. Here we go. Let's start in verse 1. Paul writing, Romans chapter 9. And remember, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is our, our, those three chapters appear to be completely out of place, right? Some people argue they don't even belong there. Right? That really, if you read Romans in chapter 8, end chapter 8, and jump to chapter 12, it makes far more sense. Because what happens in 9, 10, and 11? Israel, 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 Israel. And you're like, why are you talking about Israel when it's a book dealing with which subject? Justification. Okay, go. Okay. Y'all are starting to make me worry. I'm like, we've been studying the book since 2019 and nobody even knows what the book is about. Okay. I'm like, all right. Today we go back to Romans chapter one. Okay. You know, I'll go backwards if you make me. Okay. All right. Okay. Bobby saved everyone. Okay. We were going to go like, we're going to just go back to 2019 and start from the beginning. Always remember, if you don't know the answer. Okay. Jesus, what? If we don't know the answer, say Jesus. Okay. That doesn't work in this church. Okay. All right. Look in your notes. Right? Look in your notes. That's why I challenge you to take them. Right? Remember, we used to, we used to give notebooks out to the kids. Right? Trying to get kids. Anyone. Take notes. Take notes. Right? right. Look. We're not. Uh, the, the goal here. You either come to church. I want you to. This is very important. And I say, I'm going to. You're going to get me distracted. But this is your fault. Okay. Here we go. You either come to church, listen, to hear a sermon, or you come to church to learn the Bible. There's a big difference. I can, I can, I can fake sermons. I mean, there's no big deal. I can take, you know, 15 minutes, come up with a three-point outline, give you three nice little points, a little closing illustration, and get you out of here so you can get to the, you know, Cracker Barrel before the Methodists. Okay, I, I, can, I, can, I can make it happen, right? Right? And, and we can all just pretend that, oh, I came to church and I heard a sermon. A lot of people like little sermons, right? I don't do that, right? The goal is not to give you a sermon. What's the goal? To study the Bible, right? To engage in actual study, not just passively going, oh, that was good. That was good. And then by the time you get to Cracker Barrel, you've already forgotten what it was about. The key is to get you in the text. And I do that a lot of times by doing what? Making you do a lot of the work, yes? Okay, so that's why I do, that's why I do the review questions, right? I don't do the review questions so that you'll remind me what I preached. I do the review questions to ensure that you 
remember what was preached, all right? Does you see, you see the difference there? Okay, all right. So, in a book that seems to be focusing on justification, salvation, and all of these issues pertaining to that subject, all of a sudden you get to chapter 19 and 11, and Paul's like, time out, we're going to talk about Israel for three chapters. And you're like, what is going on? So we're trying to figure out why he's doing this. I've already explained it to you, but I'm not going to do that right now, okay? So, let's go back to Romans chapter 9, right? Here we go. Everybody, everybody now on the same page? Right? So you already got a sermon. Now, let's, let's dig into some study. All right, here we go. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience bearing me, bearing witness, bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. So the tone changes dramatically here, right? Look at how chapter 8 ends. Chapter 8 is all about what? The love of God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Everything's wonderful, everything's great. And all of a sudden, Paul starts talking in chapter 9 that he's upset. He's grieved. He's bothered. He has great sorrow in his heart. What, what is he so upset about? Paul, why, what are you so upset? And notice how he says it in verse 2. What kind of sorrow? Continual. He's continually upset. What, what's got him so upset? Verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, this is very important. Why is it significant that he says according to the flesh? He's a Jew, so he's referring to Israel. Not some spiritual Israel, but actual, physical, national Israel. Yes, this is so very important. You'll see why in a minute. We'll remind I will remind you. He's upset. He wishes that he could what? He could be accursed for them. In other words, I'll put it bluntly, he wishes that he could go to hell so that they don't have to. That's some emotion. Yes? For, uh, then verse uh, 4, who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption, glory, Covenants, giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Meaning that Israel received all of those things. That's an amazing blessing, is it not? They received all of those things. And now look what happens. Verse 5. Who are the fathers? And of whom is concerning the flesh? Christ came, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Now stop right here. Now, he, he goes from his grief to now a kind of a concern. Hey, I don't want anyone to think that what has happened. That God's word is not effectual. That God's word doesn't do what it's supposed to do. I don't want you to doubt God's word. Now, that's interesting. He's been talking about salvation, and now he's like, hey, he's worried that someone could doubt God's word. Why could someone doubt God's word? Well, what is he going to say? Uh, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Something to do with Israel. He is concerned that something about Israel could cause someone to doubt God's word. So he says, not all of those who are Israel are of Israel. And this is where 2,000 years of church history goes, spirals out of control, and nobody can agree on anything. So let's remind ourselves. So we've, we've only made it that far, Yes. Because it makes us understand we've got to define what's the question we're working on. Who is Israel? Now, let, let me make sure that we understand this. There are basically three views. Well, there's, there's a number of views in church history dealing with Israel. So let's go through them. All right. Here's view number one. Right. And, we'll, and I'm just going to do these in a different order because I want to keep your, you sharp. So let's just go with this one. There are those who believe that national Israel is done away with, God is done with them, all of their promises are gone, they're finished, they are done. And not only is God done with Israel, he did what with them? Replace them with whom? The church. All right? Sometimes referred as replacement theology. They are gone. They've been replaced. So now, the, that, the people who replaced them, called the church, is sometimes referred to as what? Spiritual Israel. So all the promises go to whom? All the curses stay with whom? 
natural, and not convenient, okay? Right? So we, we get all the blessings, they get all the curses. Everybody, we gotta love that, right? We gotta love that concept, yes? Okay? So, uh, that's, that's a very popular view. What's another view? Israel is Israel, referring to national Israel, and God is not done with them, and he made promises to them that what? He will fulfill. They haven't been fulfilled, but they have to be fulfilled. And if they're not fulfilled, what happens? Either God's a liar, the Bible's not true, or somehow we can't read. All right? That's what we've been trying to figure out. The view that says God is not done with Israel is referred to what in theology? Or we'll call it dispensationalism to be, to be, it's a part of premillennialism, but we'll call it dispensationalism because one of the key elements of dispensationalism is God is not done with Israel and any made promises has to be kept. All right? Now the millennial comes into play in all of that, which goes back to our Matthew 24 discussion, all right? But sometimes referred to as dispensationalism. Now, what bothers me is whenever you start talking about Israel, people either want to put you, they want to put you in a camp, and I hate that, right? I got no problem understanding the theological groups, but the most important thing is I don't need to be associated with a camp. I just need to know, did God make promises to Israel, and have they been fulfilled? If they haven't been fulfilled, why not? And do I remove them from Israel and replace them with me? That's the question. So, what have we, we took out? We've been spending months doing what? Looking at all the promises. We're not going to review all of these. I'm just going to kind of give you a basic summary, and I'll give you the references. If you haven't written them down, you can write them down. Of course, all the sermons are always online and on all the podcasting apps. So, you always have access to them, but let's go through these. All right, you ready? The first thing we talked about is that there are numerous Old Testament predictions which treat a repentance and a restoration of Israel, which is distinct and separate from that which followed the Babylonian captivity. In other words, there's Old Testament passages that speaks of a repentance and a restoration of Israel that was not fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity. And why do we know that it didn't reference coming out of Babylonian captivity? Because the verses spoke of whom? North and the South coming together. That did not happen after the Babylonian captivity. Because the north goes into Assyrian captivity and never, never comes back out. All right, so we already know that there is an issue here. Remember the scriptures we looked at? Hosea 3, 4 through 5. Ezekiel, basically the entire chapter of chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel. Right? Remember we looked at all of that? Yes? Does, does everybody, yes? Okay, I thought someone said, did we? And I'm like, yeah, yes, we did. Okay, we, we did. All right. All right, here we go. Number two, we, uh, we had verses that talked about the perpetuity of the nas- of nation of Israel in spite of repeated apostasies and restorations after divine chastening. In other words, we have these scriptures that constantly talk about that Israel is going to continue to last no matter how many times they apostatized, no matter how many times they were chastised. What were those scriptures? Leviticus 26, 44 through 45. Numbers 23.9, basically the whole chapter of Jeremiah 30, and Jeremiah 46, again, almost the whole chapter, and then Amos chapter 9, 8 through 11. Remember all of those? Then we looked at Isaiah 11, basically all of uh, chapter 11 and most of chapter 12. And what was interesting about this is this is an Old Testament prophecy, which is uh, unmistakable, completely unambiguous because it predicts a national restoration of Israel and it has to be in a future messianic time. All right. Um, We could talk about verses six to nine following describes conditions in that final kingdom of earth's history. We could say it refers to the millennial kingdom. If, if we go to that direction, it is a time of universal peace and prosperity among all of God's creatures, Verse 10 adds that the people of the earth shall seek Christ in that day, something, by the way, which can never and will never take place during the present age. Remember all of that? Fourth, we looked at scriptures that speak of a restoration of Israel, which will be absolute. And what's another key word? Permanent. Very good. Remember that? What's the key word, Sarah? Forever. Forever. Meaning? Forever. When we looked it up in the Hebrew... Forever. When we looked up in the Greek, forever. 
even if people argued, it still meant forever, okay? There was disagreement, but it still meant forever, okay? That was Amos 9, 14 through 15. Everybody remember that? Then we came to, then we left the Old Testament. We started looking in the New Testament, okay? We'll go through a couple of the, well, we don't have a lot to go through here, but I'm just going to make sure we have all of these down. Jesus predicted events in the future which presuppose the restoration of Israel to Canaan and the reestablishment of the ancient, ancient tribal organization of the nation. And we looked at Matthew 19, 28 and Luke 22, 28 through 29. Unless the nation of Israel is to be revived and restored, this prophecy has basically no meaning at all. Does everybody remember those two? Right, everybody? Let's just look at it just to make sure, all right? Because I get worried, all right? Because as soon as I'm like, yeah, they've got it, and then uh, we'll mention it sometimes, and people are like, what are you referring to here, okay? Matthew 19, 28, everybody there? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging... Well, that's some pretty interesting stuff, right? Okay, first of all, did that ever happen in the life of the disciples? No. What happened in 70 AD? Israel's destroyed. They don't even know which tribe they're a part of anymore because all genealogical records was destroyed when? In the burning of the temple in 70 AD, right? That's history. Nobody can argue that. Meaning, that was never fulfilled. So, what's your options? Jesus is not going to be sitting on a literal throne and they're not going to be sitting on literal thrones and they will not be ruling over literal 12 tribes of Israel. So you have to then go make it all not literal. Well, guess what you start doing if you do that in Matthew? Well, you're going to start in problems because if that's not literal, then what else is not literal? Remember, that was the whole problem with the Old Testament passages. Like, here's a chapter in Isaiah, that's not literal, but the very next chapter, that's literal. When it says that he's going to be born of a virgin, that's literal. When that, that, that is a horrible hermeneutic to start picking and choosing, right? It's got to be literal unless something tells us that there's a reason not to. Yes? All right. So that, that, I think everyone would say that's a pretty important verse, yes? And then Luke is very similar to that exact same one. There's Luke 22, 28 through 29, all right? Does everybody remember that one now? All right, next. Luke 21. Does everybody remember this one? Did we have a problem with this one? Does anybody remember? Right, Luke chapter 21. What's significant about Luke 21? Twyla better know, because she made an entire chart of it. Okay, This deals with what? Matthew 24. This is the Olivet discourse, okay? So always remember when we're dealing with Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24, we're dealing with the Olivet Discourse, and you see why all of this converges together? Because sometimes when we're we're dealing with the Olivet Discourse, what do we always have to put in our mind? 70 AD. Let's go back to uh, Luke 21. Uh, Go back to, see where, go back to verse 5. Luke 21, 5. I know we're doing lots of review, but that's okay. It'll be worth it. Luke 21, 5. And as, he, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, as for these things, what is he referring to? The temple, which, you be, which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's referencing the destruction of what? The temple. When is that temple destroyed? 70 AD. There's no question about it. And then he starts giving signs. Now, some of these signs, people immediately rip out of context and put it to the second coming. And the problem with that is some of those signs would make even make no sense because they've only happened a million times since 70 AD. But you get the idea. There may be things in here that apply to the future. That's why we're doing the Matthew 24 study. Everybody remember? But just people will rip these things so far out of context that it's just like, what? You know, wars, rumors of war. Oh, that's, that's the second coming. 
You know how many wars and rumors of war there have been since uh, 33 AD? The bazillions. At some point, the sign stops having any meaning. But between 33 AD and 70 AD, every war would have been the most significant. Ooh, another rumor of a war, another war. And before you know it, what's happening? A big war is coming. Jerusalem is what? Surrounded. Remember, I told everyone to read uh, Josephus' account of the destruction of the temple. Remember, that was homework I gave for the Bible study exercise. You read that, you're like, man, they were given plenty of signs it was coming, were they not? Now, to take those signs and apply it to the second coming, it, they stopped losing earthquakes. You know how many earthquakes there are a year? Okay. Uh, we, someone, we, we looked up, I can't remember the number of how many significant earthquakes there's been just since like 1980. And it was like over 100,000. It was some crazy number. Like that, that sign stops losing all meaning. But between 33 and 70 AD, every time the earth started shaking, you'd be like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, in the 60 AD, there were some significant ones, exactly. So, which demonstrate, hey, it's about to happen. And guess what? It happened. So we always have to look at the, the destruction of the temple. So whenever someone says, go to Luke 21, you always got to stop and go, wait a minute, all of it discourse, what's going on? So what are they going to quote? They quote Luke 21, what verse? 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trotted down. Stop right there. That's pretty literal, is it not? Is, what happens to Jerusalem? 70 AD. They're killed. What happens to the nation of Israel? Scattered to all nations. They stay that way until when? 1948. I mean, these are, these are facts. Like, this is just historical facts. Nobody can argue about any, nobody can debate any of this stuff, right? 70 AD is a historical fact. Remember, I always joke that I learned about 70 AD not in a church. I learned it in secular school, which is crazy. Everyone in church should know 70 AD like the back of their head. It's one of the most significant events for you to understand your Bible. You can't even understand most prophecy without understanding 70 AD. Everyone in this church should be an expert on it. You should be an expert on everything that happened in 70 AD. It shouldn't be the person sitting in a secular university. Christians walking into a secular university, they, gave it, they say 70 AD. Okay, I can tell you everything that happens, right? But most Christians are like, uh, what? What happened? And they don't, they don't have a clue. And it's like, how is that even humanly possible? I don't know. But it's just the church seems to oblivious to the most historical significant event That Jesus, his longest discourse, it deals with 70 AD. And then church is like, oh, we don't have a clue what that is. Right? That's that's just sad. So, but please note this verse. They shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away captive into all nations. Let me make it very clear. That's all literal. What happens next? And Jerusalem shall be trodden down. Of the Gentiles, next word, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That seems to be a literal time. Is it going to be trodden down? Is Jerusalem still trodden down? Yes, still being fought over. There's still argument and division. Jews can't even go to the Temple Mount and pray on only specific hours of the day. That's why there's some Jewish men who describe them, who will disguise themselves to look Muslim so they can get access to the Temple Mount so they can pray. There's an entire organization that teaches them how to learn a little bit of Arabic and how to learn certain things so that they can gain entrance in. They can't even go to their own Temple Mount. The time of the Gentiles is still happening, which seems to imply it's only going to happen for what? A specific amount of time. Clearly, it didn't stop when the church was born. Right? Because when the church, because in fact, after the church is born, not many years later, Jerusalem gets destroyed. Yes? So, isn't it interesting that clearly the church did not make it all go away, did it? No. All right. So, that's a very important. In fact, that would seem to indicate that what's going to happen? This is how some describe it. Jesus suggested that a period of Jewish rulership of their ancient city, Jerusalem, would follow on the conclusion of this age, which he called the times of the Gentiles, seeming to imply that once that time is over, what would happen? 
There would be some restoration and Jews or Israel would be back in charge. That seems to be, well, did that ever, has that happened yet? No, hasn't been fulfilled, right? Now go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. We looked at this one. I hope you understand why we're spending all this time doing it. Because if we don't do this, then all, of Ro- then all Romans 9, 10, 11 becomes a major argument of, that's not Israel, that's not Israel, that's not Israel. What I want to demonstrate, I don't care what you do with Romans 9, 10, 11, God made promises to Israel that has never been fulfilled. And if he doesn't fulfill them to Israel, then why can I trust that he fulfilled fulfill them to me? And if he took them from Israel and gave them to me, why couldn't he give the promises he made to me? and give them to someone else, which would cause me to call, do what? Question God and question his word. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this, okay? It so, has nothing to, I, I don't even, people will get into arguments about the different systems of eschatology. This is, not, this is not even about a system of eschatology. It's about how do I interpret God's word, right? How do I interpret God's word? What happens in Acts 1.6? When they, therefore, were come together, this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he's about to ascend, right? They come together, and what do they ask him? Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Why are they asking this question? Because of the prophecies, exactly. I see, we, some Christians in 2022 read it and go, well, they were just dumb. I mean, they didn't go to our seminary. Okay, they didn't, they didn't learn our system of eschatology. They were just fools. So this would be a perfect time for Jesus to do what? Fix it. There is no restoration. You're now Israel, the church. He could have fixed it once and for all, right? This would be the, this would take, how long would it have taken him to fix it? Let, let, let's, let's time me. You ready? There's no restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Stop. He probably was in a hurry to ascend and just didn't have time. What does he say? It's not. Oh wait, 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 what? What? He didn't say it's not going to happen. It's not for you to know. That's a significant answer. Right? If, 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 if one of the teenagers come to me, hey, when are you going to give me a million dollars? It's not for you to know. That would be like, oh, okay, we better keep going to that church because he may give me a million dollars. If I look at him like, what are you talking about? I'm not giving you a penny, much less a million dollars. Go sit down. Then they're like, we got to find a new church. Right? You, think I, if I, if I, you think if I'm not going to give a million dollars, I would say so, right? I mean, I, I, you say, well, that's a million dollars. I think the restoration of the kingdom of Israel is probably worth to them more than a million dollars. This is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. That's why we looked at all of those Old Testament prophecies. So he tells them it's not for them to know. What else does he say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So in other words, don't worry about that. And then what does he tell them to worry about in the next verse? Be my witness. In other words, you don't worry about when that's going to happen. Here's what I want you to do in the meantime, preach. Here's what I want you to do in the meantime, teach. He doesn't say that it's not going to happen. That is significant from just a biblical perspective. That means there's got to be some restoration of the kingdom to Israel. When is that supposed to happen? Some people will argue, I guess it happened in the next chapter, at the day of Pentecost. Well, that would make, I mean, that, that, that would, well, clearly now it, 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 it didn't mean anything literally. And not only was, it's not even Israel, it's for whom? The Gentiles. Because the church is primarily made up by of whom in 2022? Gentiles. So, I mean, like, it, it just stops making any sense. All right, go to Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish these. We're going to finish these. Romans 
Romans 11, verse 25. I know we're a long ways from chapter 11, but just so that you know. Romans 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. So he doesn't want them to become what? He, don't want to, he doesn't want them to be ignorant, and he doesn't want them to become arrogant. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He doesn't want them to become arrogant. In this particular case, your ignorance can make you arrogant. A lot of times, ignorance can make you arrogant, yes? Right? That's why, remember, I always make the joke that one of my uh, seminary professors used to say the purpose of education is to show you how much you don't know because that's what makes you humble, right? If, you, if all you, if you're never, if, if some people experience education and become more arrogant, then the professor didn't do it right because the professor is supposed to constantly be making sure you understand how much you don't know and for, ever, for every amount of knowledge you gain, there's a million things you're yet to know. Knowledge should make you humble, should not make you arrogant, but it tends to, to do the opposite. But that's a whole different story, all right? All right, so he doesn't want you to be wise in your own conceits. Now, here's, now what is he talking about? Are you ready? That the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, let's stop right here. If we make Israel the church, this verse makes literally no sense. The church is blind until the Gentiles come in. That makes absolutely no sense. Would everyone agree? So therefore, Israel there is referring to whom? The nation of Israel. And what has happened to the nation of Israel? They've been blinded. For what purpose? Do this. They've been blinded for me. Almost every, I'm assuming everyone here is Gentile. They've been blinded so that we can come in. I feel, we should feel horrible for them, but we should fall on our face in humility for us because we don't deserve to be brought in. Okay? We're just as unfaithful and rebellious as they were. They've been set aside so that we can come in. What happens? Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Once again, he references what? An Old Testament passage to say Israel's been set apart or been blinded, but ultimately what will happen? There's a period of time and they will be delivered and they will be saved. All right? Has that happened yet? No, it has not. Are they still blind? Yes, okay. Now, then we talked, now remember this one is where we had a few problems here. Uh, the scriptures describe a future time when a temple of God in the Jewish city of Jerusalem shall be appropriated by God as its own and be misappropriated by Antichrist. We looked in the book of Revelation. Remember Revelation chapter 11? What did we find there? You can look really quick. We have a measurement of a temple in Revelation chapter 11. Everybody see this? Revelation 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. That is bizarre that that is in the book of Revelation. Why is that bizarre that that's in the book of Revelation? Revelation is written after there's no temple. Where's another uh, important section of the Bible where a temple is measured? Yeah, last, I don't remember, a number of chapters in Ezekiel is all about this temple, this temple, this temple. You're like, what temple is that referencing? It doesn't seem, the measurements don't fit any temple that's ever been built. So it seems to be referencing a future temple, and Revelation is referring to a measurement of a temple, and it couldn't be referring to the temple that stood when Jesus was on earth because it no longer existed when Revelation was written possibly in the 90s. Now, I know amillennialists, some preterists, will try to say that it was written prior to 70 AD, but there's almost no scholarly reason to accept that. Now, the reason why, if you're a preterist, what do you want to do with the book of Revelation? It was all fulfilled when? 70 AD. I wish it would work that way, but it's just doesn't, there's just no way to find a scholarly argument for it. Now, and, there are, and you know what their argument will be? You know why it was written before 70 AD? It mentions the temple. 
<laughs> That's kind of like, I'm already come to a conclusion. Now I'm going to read my conclusion into the book. You don't base the dating on because it doesn't fit your theology. Right? Please note, if it doesn't fit your theology, you don't change the date to make it fit your theology. Hey, this doesn't work. I've got to change the date. It, that's not how we do Bible study. Right? Everybody agree? Now, they, they make a mistake here. I don't like that they did this. This shows up in a lot of commentaries. Which, which, where are they going to go next? Second Thessalonians. Oh, I wish they wouldn't have done this. But this happens in so many commentaries, so we're going to have to just look at it. And then I have to be the unpopular one here. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Oh, we got to hurry, we got to hurry, we got to hurry. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. All right, everybody ready? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that, that he as God sitteth where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now this is typically a reference to people wanting to put this where? In a future temple, and this person sometimes is identified as whom? The Antichrist. Now, what's the problem here? The Second Thessalonians written way before 70 AD. It's written around in the 50s. And we think possibly this is fulfilled when Titus comes in in 70 AD and desecrates the temple. So, everyone wants to put it future. You can try to make it work, but the point is, let's just make it very clear, this could be referencing 70 AD. Right? I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm just saying we have to at least acknowledge that possibility. If we're going to go to Revelation and say, wait a minute, this was written after 70 AD, we have to be honest about any book that was written prior, or we're not being honest with the Bible. Okay? We just have to be honest. Remember, please always remember this. The goal in Bible study is not that your team wins. It's not about my theological team. What, what theological team do we have? Truth. That's all that matters, okay? So just know, I would never quote 2 Thessalonians as a proof for that the temple has to be restored because it's written in a book prior to that temple being destroyed and someone did desecrate that temple in 70 AD. And guess what? Why would they go in and destroy the temple? Why did ancient armies go in and destroy the religious objects? They were showing that we're greater than your God. Your God can't stop us. And if you destroy people's faith in their God, in many cases it's easier to do what? Control them. So in a roundabout way, by destroying the temple, what was he claiming? I'm God, right? So in a roundabout way, it kind of fits. So we just got to be fair, all right? I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying we have to be fair, all right? Then we go to Revelation chapter 7. What happens in Revelation chapter 7? Right, we haven't been here. I know. That's good. Revelation chapter 7. We got we got just a couple to go. All right? So bear with me because we want we've got to finish this. But I wanted to do the review so that we're all on the same page here, okay? Here we go. Revelation chapter 7. What happens here? Everybody ready? Something weird happens here, all right? Revelation 7 verse 1. And after These things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not, or it was given to hurt the earth and in the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So there has, you can't hurt anyone until this sealing takes place, right? Verse 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000. What? Of all the tribes of the children of Israel. When is this written? Where are the tribes of Israel? 
They're gone. And then look what he does so that nobody can say, oh, this is the church. This is the church of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Aser were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed. Do you get the point? What's, what's significant about that? He mentions actual tribes. If you say that's the church, do you realize how utterly ridiculous that looks? Now the church is described as what? Twelve tribes? See, it just starts all, everything just starts falling apart. The fact that this mention seems to indicate what? There's going to have to come a future time that what's going to occur. The tribal structure has to come back into place in some way, shape, or form. Or as one commentary puts it, this, the revelation predicts a resumption of God dealing with Israel in the sealing of 144,000 Israelites organized according to their tribal divisions. That's never happened. Not, not since the Old Testament, but I'm saying not since 70 AD. Because the tribal divisions, what happened to them? They're gone. And no records, right? Now, number 11, uh, the 11th kind of section we're talking about, go to Ezekiel 36. Oh, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. I'm going to try. Probably spent too much time in review, but I want everyone to know this stuff. Ezekiel 36. And we're going to see, whenever I get to these chapters, I want to just do the whole chapter, okay? But let's just go to verse 21. Ezekiel 36, verse 21. Everybody there? Ezekiel 36, 21. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whether they went. What happens in verse 22? Therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you went. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, uh, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Now, please note, this is referring to Israel. Yes, there's no question about it. Israel, you profaned my name. Now, what is he going to do with them? Gather them. Now, look at the next part. What does he do in verse 25? I'm going to sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you, and a... New heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Everyone rips those verses out of context and applies them to us. Who is that a promise to? It's super significant is for Israel. Okay? If it's for Israel, then what's the significance? Has this ever happened? What does Paul say in Romans 11? All Israel will be saved. I mean, there's no way to get around that Ezekiel is not talking about Israel. Like, it's insane to, to, to try to throw the church into that. Now, look, I know I, I went to seminary that I had to write it from a non-millennial perspective, so I've written papers on this trying to make it the church. I can try to play that game if you want. Typically, what you just do is say, you know what, I don't really care about eschatology. I care more about theology proper. So, okay, it's Israel. It's the church. I don't care. Well, it doesn't work. It just, it just falls apart. Verse 28. And Oh, yeah, here we go. What, and what I love all these promises. What do they always throw in? Land, land, land. They always, why do they always throw in the land? Land was in the original covenant. And number two, once you start mentioning land, you destroy the spiritual application. 
The amillennialists just say, well, the land is just, it, it's not real land, it's just the influence of the church. It's like, what? Do you know how, how messed up that is? Like, and you know who, what makes me angry? The people who always want to argue about it is some Gentile sitting in America who doesn't seem to care at all about a Jew living in Israel constantly under threat and people wanting to kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth. You, you want to take away the promise that was given to them. Like, you don't get a promise. I get it sitting here in America. Well, man, that, it's, it must be great that you're so arrogant that you think it belongs to you. And so what does, he say, what does he say? And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That is a complete salvation of them. And please note, why did he do it? He said in the previous uh, verse there in Ezekiel, not for your sakes, for his name's sake. God's name, listen, I cannot stress this enough. When it comes to biblical prophecy, you can hate dispensationalist. You can hate everything about it. You can be the biggest anti-Semite in the world. I don't, I'm not here to argue with you. Okay, I think you're messed up and I think it's basically racism, but that's a whole different story. Here's the issue. You hate God. Israel's future is attached to God's character. You may want to write that down. The future of Israel is attached to God's character. If God doesn't do to Israel what he promised, then you can't trust him. If you're a part of a big family, you may have that brother or that sister who constantly will say, promise you something and never do it. Lie to you mislead you, mess you over, promise you this, and just constantly, just not, you, they're not trustworthy. At some point, you stop falling for it, right? Yeah, whatever. Hey, 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 I got this for you. Whatever. You just know that whatever they say, you can't trust them. Yes? Well, if, you, if God makes hundreds of promises, look, we've spent weeks going through these promises. I've spent an entire hour reviewing these. You may say, we get it, we get it. Until it's burned in your brain, you don't have it. And the reason why is Paul wants you to understand, look to Israel. That's why you can trust that nothing can separate you from God's love because nothing could separate Israel from God's love. And if there was anyone who could have been separated from God's love based on what they do, it would have been whom? Israel. And I want everyone in this room to know, if you're a Christian... I don't care what may happen in your Christian life. You may fall into sin. You may fail. It may be embarrassing. Your parents may get mad. But guess what? God always loves you and there is always forgiveness in him. Don't run from God. Run to God in your sin. Just like Israel was not forsaken by their God, no matter how much they rebelled or how much they fell, he's going to restore them and give them the promise that he promised them. Not based off their faithfulness, but on his, for his name's sake. Israel's future is connected to God's character. That's why this is important. That's why Paul takes three chapters out to deal with it. All right? Then, the last part. The Bible reveals that the very worthiness of God as the object of faith of the patriarchs requires that he yet restore Israel and fulfill the promises to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. That's basically what I just said. God's character is tied to what he does to Israel. The worthiness of God as an object of your faith, requires him to keep his promises. If God doesn't keep his promise, he's not worthy of your faith. He can't be trusted. Right? You ready to go through these scriptures real fast? Romans eleven twenty eight. Let's go turn them really quick. Romans eleven twenty eight. Right? Everybody there? 
We'll start in verse 25 really quick. Romans 11, 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. This covenant, we just read a little bit about that covenant in Ezekiel, did we not? It's going to take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So when it comes to the gospel, who's, who's, our, who's the enemy to the early church? The Jews becomes the enemy to the gospel. But note what happens. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Wow, that is powerful. For the gospel, they may be your enemy now. But for election, they are what? They are beloved. And then note what the next part says. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. How can you turn Israel into the church and then that make any sense? God God replacing Israel with me would mean that his promises are with repentance. He repented of it and changed. I don't want a God who repents of the promises he made to me because of my unfaithfulness. I want a God who makes a promise to me and will keep that promise even though I'm a sinner and a failure and everybody here better say amen to that. That's an amazing section of scripture right there. All right, go to Leviticus chapter 26. Oh, we're going to hurry, going to hurry, going to hurry, going to hurry. Leviticus 26. I really thought this was going to be short, but okay. I know every time I say that, because I always have to feel back. I got to go back and review. All right. Leviticus 26, verse 40. Everybody there? Leviticus 26, 40. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespasses, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember and I will remember the land. And then it goes on to say other things. Another thing, just saying God will remember. There's going to be a remembrance. They will be brought to repentance. Please note, they will be brought to repentance. And we could go all the way down to verse 45. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen that I might be their God and I am the Lord. He's going to remember. All right, then go to Jeremiah 33. There's more there we could look at, but because of time. This is the last one. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, starting verse 23. Everybody there? Jeremiah 33, starting at verse 23. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Consider thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord hath chosen hath even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people that should be no more a nation before them. Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant... Be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the seed of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of the seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity return and have mercy on them. Basically, what's he saying there? He's going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his promise. Now, what do we do with all of this? All right, everybody ready? This is what I want you to take from this. Whatever happens in Romans 9, because everybody gets to this part, well, not all Israel is Israel, so then they want to change who Israel is. Okay? All right. Whatever you want to do with this, here's what we have to take. This just has to be the, like, ground zero foundational level. God made promises to Israel, to the nation. Those promises have never been fulfilled They have to be fulfilled. I don't care what else you want to do. I don't care what games you want to play. That is absolutely non 
negotiable. It's not even debatable. God, we just look, how many promises have we looked at now? A lot. Have they been fulfilled? No. To say that they're fulfilled in us makes God a liar. So there's promises to Israel that will be fulfilled. We don't even have to get into debate on the when or the how. Like, people can argue that all day, right? Millennial kingdom, this way, that. You can argue all day about that. I know this. He made promises. He has to fulfill those promises. Now, why do we need to know that in Romans 9, 10, and 11? Because, one, we can't have anyone, anyone who wants to make an argument still got to deal with these facts. These facts are non-negotiable, all right? He's made these promises. But here's the thing. The whole reason Paul is doing this is he wants you to understand the power of God's promise, his election. He chose, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies, and you cannot make him unlove you, unchoose you. None of that can happen. No matter what you do in your life, God's love, God's mercy is there. Nothing can separate you from it. Nothing can separate you from it. And it's not our job to separate people from it. Okay? When people fall and they're in a, the pigsty, it's not for us to go and kick them. It's for us to remind them nothing separates you from the love of God. Doesn't mean you excuse the sin. But we want to bring them the fact that nothing separates them from God's love. Right? Because God did not cast away Israel. He doesn't cast us away. That's the, that's the reason he, he wants them to understand this. God's, it's not, God's word is not void. God's word is not disqualified from being true because of Israel. Some people could look at the Bible and go, well, wait a minute. God made these promises to Israel. It never happened. God's a liar. The Bible's not true. And you know what we have to say? Wait. It will happen. And if it doesn't, then the Bible's a lie. And God's a liar. And if you want to steal those promises from Israel and give them to someone else, you're attacking God's character. And they're not your promises to take. They weren't made to you. That's simple. If you're a Gentile wanting to claim those promises, what gives you the right to do that? You're not of the tribe of Judah. You're not of the house of Israel. You're, who are you? That's just so messed up. You know, like, I, I don't know why we would do that, but we do that in our theology. Okay? Any questions about that? So, next week, where do we work on? How do, the, how do commentaries handle not all Israel is Israel? Whatever they do, we can disagree on that. But what can we not disagree on? God made promises to Israel that he will keep. Do you see why we just did that now? Because we come to this, everyone's going to have, everyone's going to be like, no, 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 Israel's not, this, no, no. And everybody's going to argue. I'm like, fine, I, I'm just going to let you argue and I'm not going to care. I'm like, fine, whatever. And you know what I know? God made promises to Israel that hasn't been fulfilled and they must be fulfilled. You can do whatever you want to destroy who Israel is. You can't destroy that national Israel was giving promises that have to be fulfilled because it's promises of land and it always refers to them as the house of Israel and the house of Judah, meaning both the northern and southern kingdom. Clearly, it's national Israel. And then in Romans 11, whatever you try to do in 9, Paul's going to come back and fix it in chapter 11, okay? Because he's going to say, who's going to be saved? Our Israel. Right? So you can try to, you can do it, you can play all the games you want, but at some point it's going to fall apart. All right. But, and not only that, if Israel's not Israel, then why is he taking three chapters to talk about them? Hey, I'm going to talk about an, an, an Israel that, yeah, it, it makes no sense. All right. Any questions? There we go. All of that, that was a long, a lot of work. Now we start the hard work of 9, 10, and 11 going verse by verse through it, and it's going to be a lot of work. And tonight, Matthew 24, and we're going to look at the preterist perspective, and that's going to be a lot of hard work too. So thinking caps on tonight, all right? Everybody ready? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, for the last couple of weeks, we have reviewed and reviewed and reviewed all of these promises that you've given to Israel. And what we can learn from them is this. The promises you've made to us are permanent. 
we do not lose those promises because of our failure, because of our sin, but because the reason we can trust those promises is because of your faithfulness. Let us leave here today grateful that no matter what we may do, that you will always love us, your mercy and grace is always extended to us, and your calling and election cannot be revoked. And we are thankful for that, that we, no matter how sinful we may be, that there is a promise of eternal life based on uh, your righteousness, not on our righteousness. We should be motivated because of this to live godly lives, and we should feel horrible for treating your grace and mercy with such disrespect. But whenever we do sin, let us not run from you, but let us run to you. Because running from you is of no value and leads to nothing but disaster. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,